Well, let's uh, continue with the worship of our Lord and what He's done for us. And considering those things, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as we conclude the four-part series on the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation, Romans eight twenty-nine through 30. And today we look at that last link in the chain, glorification. Glorification. And remember, Paul's writing here to show people they cannot be lost. They cannot be lost if they are truly chosen to be saved by God. And they are called and they are justified. They will indeed be glorified. And so I want to just include verse 28 because 29 and 30 are explaining why 28 is true. Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that God causes all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What a wonderful theology this is. These verses, they they show us this unbreakable chain that God will never separate. That no man can separate. That no demon, no, no, no devil can separate. That when God, the Puritan said, drop down this golden chain of salvation and drags people up, he brings them to heaven, that he will accomplish what he set forth to do. And that's how they came up with the golden chain. It was a a link of chains from heaven to earth to, metaphorically speaking, to save people. It was God's plan all along. And there's five total links in it that we've been considering that help us as believers to, to be assured everything works together for our good according to God's purpose. We may not think everything is good. God has set things in our life and set things in our path and marked out things to happen in the world and to us individually as believers because he has determined, according to his purpose, that they are good. And so Paul explains how we know that. How do we know that God will do these things? Well, because of these five links in a chain. First, the all-powerful God has foreknown them, those whom he foreknew. This means that God set his covenantal love upon them. Not because of anything that we would do, not because of anything that we would say in the future. No, not because of God's foresight, but because He chose them beforehand. He chose specifically whom He would set His love on. Whom He would choose to bring about His own purposes. And then it says He predestined them. That's the second link. He predestined them to be conformed into the image of His Son. Predestined simply means that He marked out. Because he's already determined to set his love on them, he's marked out the things that would come to pass, particularly as pertains to salvation. He's marked out for them before the foundation of the world to come to a saving knowledge of his son. Of course, I mean, if he's decided to set his love upon them, then he's going to mark out the things that will happen, just as he's done in all things in the universe. And then the same group of people, he says, will be justified but only after they're called, you see? There's also a calling. That step three in that link will be those who are called, those who are effectually drawn to God, that He's opened their eyes, that He's changed their hearts so that they can believe, so that they will come to Christ. No one comes to Christ, Jesus said, unless the Father draws them, and that's the calling, the divine calling upon the heart that wants people to hear the gospel, that some, the same group that God has foreknown, the same group that God has predestined will receive a call to the heart and that will give them a new heart so they can believe. Regeneration. Regeneration. And then, of course, that's the group, step four, that is justified. Justified is often where a reader starts as they're reading through Romans. They've been justified. They've been saved. Saved through faith, Paul says, through the channel of faith. But God is doing the justifying. And Paul wants us to go backwards now and look at these things that happened before in eternity past the foreknowing, the predestining. And then calling comes about at the time a person is saved and then they've been justified. And now he turns to go and look towards the future. 
Today, number five, the fifth link in the chain is glorification. If he's done all these things, Paul's saying, in the past, and right up until the present, he will certainly glorify that same group. No one's dropping out along the way. The same people, those you see, whom? These group of people here, whom he foreknew, whom he predestined, whom he called, whom he justified. The same group will also be glorified. So as we look at the glorification, the doctrine of glorification, I want to look at it under three subheadings that we'll go through today. But remember Paul's overall argument that God works all things out for good for those who love him. And it's according to his purpose. And how does he do it? Well, he starts with for new, Paul says, and he ends with glorification. So first, let's look at the path of glorification. The path of glorification, number one. Paul's laying out here a, a path for believers to consider. It's true that God has done these things, and we need to know them. They're not there just for our theological debate, but they're there to comfort us. And he's shown how things come about. Theologians call this the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Ordo salutis is Latin, and we just say order of salvation in English. How does God bring about salvation, all the elements involved? And we see these things in Scripture, but Paul gives us a a five-step process here. There are other things we'll talk about that get also included in the order of salvation. But the Bible teaches us here that there's a step-by-step process that God is doing. We are not doing. And if you're an astute Bible student, you've been a believer for very long, you might look at this list here, these five things that he's given, and say, you left out something. You might think, Paul, where is sanctification? Where is it? There's justification that, that God has declared a believer righteous in Christ, that they've been forgiven, that they've received the righteousness of Christ. And then there's glorification, which is the last link. But where's sanctification? Paul, you skipped over it. What happened there? Because all believers know they must be sanctified, that they're being sanctified while they're in Christ, awaiting glory. Well, Paul's only mentioning here, I think, theologians debate this, but I think he's only mentioning the things that that God is exclusively working out for us. That it's monergistically being done by God. We are not participants in foreknowing. We are are not there when God predestined. We do not do anything when God calls. We respond, of course, but we are not there as he's doing that, making a decision. We are not working with him. And it's the same with justification. God is the one who justifies. Paul says that later in Romans. Yes, that's the path. But but also, yes, sanctification is included. Paul's not focusing on that here, though. He's focusing on the things that God does solely by himself for believers. Paul says it like this uh, in Philippians 2.12. When he's talking about sanctification, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are supposed to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's Paul's saying, look, you have been saved. You have been justified. Now work out what God has put in you. Work it out with your life. Live a holy lifestyle. That's what we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Work it out. Live a holy lifestyle. But it's actually God working in you. But you work it out. So which is it? Is it God or is it us? It's both. God's put it in us. We're to submit to the Holy Spirit. We're submit to God, submit to Scripture, ask Him for His blessing to help us work these things out. And that will eventually lead to glorification. So we are cooperating in sanctification. Much of the level of sanctification we will have is not based upon God, but based upon us, how we submit to His will, how we obey. That's sanctification, progressive sanctification. That as you grow as a Christian, you'll be more and more holy because God is working things in us and we are submitting to that work. God is at work in us to make us more holy after justification. But we're to work it out as God has told us. Now, we're not taking a passive view of sanctification either. We're not to say just sit back and let God do the work. If that was the case, I think Paul would have included it in the golden chain. If we did nothing, if if God was doing it all, 
I think he would have said, those whom he has justified are those whom he will sanctify and those whom he will glorify. Now, Romans 8, 28 through 30 is focused on God's sovereignty and what God alone is doing for the believer. And so I think he leaves sanctification out there because we're not to take this passive view. We're not to say, let go and let God. Or, or just look back to the cross. Just look back to your justification and stop worrying about pursuing holiness. These are false teachings that are out there right now. Just, just let go and let God. He's doing it all. You don't have to do anything in your sanctification. And we know that's true in justification. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that mes- message. When, when God declares someone righteous, he does that. Yes, he, it's through faith. He uses the channel of faith, but it's, it's him who justifies. And we cannot earn it. But in sanctification, we cooperate. We participate. We're not just to sit back and let things happen. We're not just to sit back and say, God, sanctify us. We are here doing nothing. That's antinomianism. That's, that's living a lawless life before the Lord. No, it's us working out the power of God. Remember, that's in us to live a holy life. We're to be separated from the world, separated from sin. Point people to Christ. Tell them the gospel and show them that we are living it out on our way to glorification. So before we even get to glorification, we just need to consider that doctrine. Not, not to, to leave it out. Paul's already discussed it in Romans, in previous chapters, in Romans 5, in Romans 6, in Romans 7. He's dealing with this idea of how should we live now that we've been justified. God's the author of our salvation. It's not us. But we are called to pursue holiness during our time here. We're called to be sanctified and to work that salvation out in our life. I think that's why Paul's leaving it out here. And he's not mentioning it. Others agree that, you know, he doesn't mention conversion either. He doesn't mention faith and repentance. That happens right after calling. Right after God has changed the heart. But, but we participate. We are cooperating in, in the faith and repentance. It's granted by God, but we have to act. He's already taught on justification. He's already taught on sanctification. His point here in Romans 8 is, you can't lose what God has already given. You can't reverse what God has already done. And don't worry about others taking it from you. And so he's saying, look at what God has sovereignly done in these five links of the chain, and these five steps. I think if he throws in conversion and faith and repentance and sanctification, people might get sidetracked in that argument and start saying, yeah, but I haven't been all that holy. My faith is weak. My repentance is weak sometimes. And he doesn't want to get sidetracked there. He is focused on a very specific idea throughout the end of Romans 8 here, which we'll see. Now, Paul is saying here, these huge pillars of God's election and predestination and effectual calling and justification and glorification, they're all done 100% by him. You don't justify yourself. You don't glorify yourself. You don't predestine yourself. You don't foreknow yourself. It's all of God. And so we need to understand that path. We need to understand what Paul's focus is here. Yes, sanctification is biblical. He's not put it in this five-step chain for a purpose, for a reason. And so let's get to that purpose. Let's get to the, the overall purpose that he mentions glorification here. Number two, I want us to consider the purpose of glorification. What's it for? What's he doing? What is it? What is glorification? And I'll just tell you up front that God has purpose that the final step in the process of salvation will be glorification, a complete sanctification, a complete making believers holy. And he's removing all spiritual defects. That's where we're going with this idea of glorification. That's what the Bible teaches. If we were to do a word study here on the, on the Greek word doxadzo, we get doxology, dox, dox being glory there. The word doxadzo is to cause to have splendid greatness, to clothe in splendor, to glorify, and also used to speak of the glory that comes in the next life. That's what you'll get if you look that up in a, the Greek word study there on the New Testament. Now, we should glorify God when we worship Him. And we use that term in English, don't we? We glorify God when we worship Him. And the Bible says that we should glorify God. That's not what we're talking about when we speak of glorification. When we glorify and praise God, we are indeed doing what the definition says. We are lifting Him up. We are acknowledging His splendid greatness. We're 
admitting that God is clothed in splendor. But the word in context here, to glorify, is used another way. It's a sense of literally clothing a person in splendor in the coming resurrection of believers. That we are going to be clothed in splendor. Yes, Christ is clothed in splendor because of his resurrection, and we will be clothed in splendor. Yes, we worship God because of he is the glory. He is the one who is glory. But he will also glorify us that are believers in Christ. This is how it's said of Jesus when Jesus was speaking of his own resurrection. Sometimes he used the word resurrection and sometimes he simply said that he would be glorified by the Father when he was raised from the dead. Now glorification does not occur though. It does not occur when you die and your soul goes to heaven, believer. That's, that's not glorification in the Bible. It doesn't occur then. It's it, as glorious as that is. Paul said it's, it's better to go and be with Christ than to live in this life. That is a glorious thing. But that's not the act of glorification that Paul's talking about in Romans 8.30 and other places in Scripture. No, that's what God promises to do for believers at the resurrection. At the resurrection of believers. When we are given a perfect body. When we are raised again. And that our soul is reunited with a perfect body. That's glorification. That's when it happens. That's when it happens. Yes, we'll have a glorious existence with our soul in heaven while we wait for the resurrection. But God's looking down the road even further. And Paul's writing of that here. A perfectly glorified body. An existence that is something we can't imagine. We can just read about it in scripture and consider it and think about it. A perfectly glorified body. He's already been talking about that. If you go back to Romans 8, 18, it's kind of where he started this section here. Talking about suffering and, and this concern that they have. That believers might suffer so much they lose their salvation. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, he's not talking about the glory of Christ. Yes, Christ will be revealed to us, but he's talking about the body that we'll have, the, the perfected existence in the eternal state. We see that in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation, he says, is waiting for this moment when, when the sons of God will have a glorified existence, when they will have glorified bodies. Skip down to verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, like the creation groans, but we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He's not talking about the adoption that happens right when you are justified, but he's saying there's a, there's a promise of that in the future. But we're going to get a redeemed body. That's the glory that he's focused on here. A redeemed body. Jesus speaks of this in John 6, John 6, 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. There are many benefits to the Christian life now. Knowing that we're justified. Knowing that we're adopted. Knowing that we're being sanctified. But he's looking all the way here, Paul is, and Jesus is in that verse I just quoted, all the way to the end point, the purpose, so that we can have a glorified body and spend eternity with God, spend eternity with Christ. You see, when you're, when you're justified, you're declared righteous, but you're not fully righteous in everything that you actually are because you're still a sinner at times you still sin you're not a sinner headed to con condemnation but you still sin that's where in john uh first john 1 9 it says we're to confess our sins and that that god is faithful and that he's righteous and that he will cleanse us as we confess as we go through the christian life we're declared righteous when we stand before god he'll only see christ we're declared righteous we're not to go to judgment but we need a fully redeemed body, a fully redeemed existence that's without sin so that we can live with him forever. And that's a promise Jesus gives to believers. Let me give you four main purposes, four main things that are happening in that. It's not on your screens, but 
Paul talks about it in Scripture and Jesus as well. When he, when he describes glorification, it will be a real physical body. A real physical body. It's, it's not just a spiritual existence. Sometimes people think that we're just going to sit on the cloud and play golf or whatever your favorite sport is. That we're just going to play the harp. We're just going to sing all day. You know, unbelievers will joke that hell's going to be more fun, so they'd rather go there. Because heaven sounds boring. And there's actually people writing in books that if they could just go to hell and party sometimes, heaven won't be so boring. No, it's not a, it's not a spiritual existence. All those false ideas set aside, it, it's not a spiritual only existence. It is spiritual in that we'll be with the Spirit and with Christ and with the Father. It is spiritual in that sense. But remember Jesus when he was raised from the dead and had his glorified body. What did he say? Remember the disciples were concerned. They thought they were seeing a spirit. They were scared. Jesus said, see my hands, see my feet. It is I myself. It's not just his soul, but it's as full humanity that they can see there. Touch me, he says, see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. The glorified body is one of flesh and bones. It is one of a, a real existence in the flesh. So not only will we have this perfect spirit, but we'll also have a real physical existence. Better than we have now, of course. But it will be physical. There will be similarities to now. The Bible talks about houses, cities, various things upon the earth. But we're not to think that we're to go and play shuffleboard in the clouds, waiting for our wings to come someday and be like angels. No, it's a real physical new heavens and new earth with a new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. Also, Secondly, it will be marked by glory, not dishonor. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be in there for a bit as we consider what this glorification looks like. And this is something you should hope for, that you should want, that you should desire. God's going to bring it out in the resurrection. So Paul talks about that in the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at verse uh, 43 here. In verse 43, he says, it is, he's talking about the, the imperishable body here in verse 42. And in 43, he says, it's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Let's just talk about raised in glory. I mean, that's the idea of, of glorification there. That the body we have now was created for God, was created for good, Serving God. God created us for His purpose. But when Adam and Eve fell, they, they fell into sin. And then we inherit sin and we commit acts of sin since then. We're using it for dishonor when we sin. The body was designed for glorifying God, for worshiping Him. And Paul says, someday when you get that new body, it's going to be marked by glory, not dishonor. Not dishonor. We're not going to be able to do sinful acts. We won't want to do them. We can't do them. We'll be perfect. Romans 6, 13 calls us to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. And Paul says, but, but we often present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. And don't do that, Paul says. Don't do that. Our bodies should be instruments of righteousness. But when we sin, what we're doing is presenting them as instruments of unrighteousness, of sin. Not this new glorified body. It's going to be raised in glory without any weakness, without any dishonor. It will be righteous. It will be holy. Even believers now who have the Holy Spirit in them still struggle against sin. But it won't be that way then. The most faithful person, even the Apostle Paul himself, had to battle sin in the flesh. But not in his new resurrected body, in his glorified body. It won't be like that. All that sin will be done away with in glory. And then, then believers in the resurrected bodies will be without that, without dishonor. And our glorified state will be one of perfect holiness, free from every sin. You cannot imagine what it would be like to be free from every sin. You should desire that. You should strive for that. But it won't be accomplished in this life. But it is a battle every day that we've got to, to try for. But in that time, when we are glorified, Paul says, it will happen. 
He talks again about this in Ephesians 5. He's talking about Christ and the church. But, but notice what he says at the end of here, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. So this process of sanctification, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present himself, the church, in all her glory. God's going to do this. We aren't doing this. Eventually we'll be presented to Christ in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Those who are in the true church, saved by faith alone in Christ alone, will be perfectly made holy. Will be marked by glory. Cleansed from every defilement. Every defilement of the body and the spirit. Our spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Every defilement that we have. See, the, the, the sin nature, yes, it's in our flesh, but it's also in our soul as humans. And when we die as believers, our soul goes to heaven and it's perfected. And then we get the resurrected, perfected body at the resurrection. Glorified. Nothing unclean will enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, which the Lord will bring down and will dwell upon in the earth. Also, another purpose here is that it will be an imperishable body. Imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Skip down to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. And for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. When we are with Christ in that resurrected state, our bodies cannot waste away. Our bodies cannot perish. They cannot die. It's a glorified state. And Paul talks about all these different things in 1 Corinthians 15 to let us know how wonderful it will be. He doesn't just say, you'll all be glorified, it'll be great. No, he, he, he's getting very detailed here in that description. And he wants us to know how that will be. We can't imagine it, but he's trying to convey it to us. He's trying to help us. We'll rest from our labors. We'll have an imperishable body and, and we'll rest from our labors and we will be able to serve him now with that body in the right way. See, really, if you think about it, when your body dies now and you go to heaven as a believer, that's true rest. I mean, you're just waiting for your body. But when you get your body, it'll be a rest because work won't be hard, but it'll also be work involved. We'll be glorifying the Lord with what we should do. Because our bodies will be imperishable. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who would transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Jesus did not have any perishableness to his glorified body. He still has it now. He'll return to the earth, of course, and, and reign. It's a perfect glorified body. It will not perish. It will not die. It will not wear out. And he continues now with this, this fourth one here. A glorified body is raised in power. It's raised in power, not in weakness like the natural body. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 43. We've already read this, but we only covered the first part. 1543, that, that second part there of the verse says, it is sown in weakness. The body's sown in weakness. When we're born into this world, we're, we're weak. And when we die, that weakness gets sown into the ground. The body, in other words, gets sown into the ground. And God's going to take the elements that make up your body in the resurrection is going to be raised in power. It's going to be raised in power. He's not completely doing away with who you are. He's not erasing who you are. There'll be a lot of similarities as far as looks, I think, and personality in the resurrection. But it's raised in power. It's raised in power. 1 Corinthians also uh, 15.55. Look at that one. He describes this now. We will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? No more death, because the body is imperishable, and also because we're raised in power. God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. 
This body will never die. It'll never be weak. It will never grow old. It will never wear out. There won't be sickness. We can serve God exactly as he would have us to do. Like Adam and Eve should have served, but couldn't. They failed. We'll have a glorified body to do exactly as the Lord tells us. Not just sitting around singing all day. I don't even think all of us will have a harp or play harps. We're not to be angels. We're to serve him upon the new earth. We're to work for him and we'll have no reason to not do it and not do it with joy. That's what glorification is about. Of course, it's only a promise made to believers. This is not a a sermon about where the unbelievers end up. They end up, though, of course, in eternal punishment. But for the believer, they end up in eternal glorification. Are we able to do everything that we've always wanted to do for God and everything we didn't even know we should do for God and do it perfectly and for His glory? All because we have this wonderful body, raised in glory, raised in power, imperishable. That's what glorification is. Steve, uh, Steve Lawson, one of my favorite preachers, said it like this. He said that we want to serve God more now, but we have to sleep. We want to pray and study the Bible, but we grow weary. But in this glorified existence, bodies will do whatever we want them to do. We will possess boundless energy with which to serve God. Can you imagine serving the Lord? All those great ideas you always want to do and never do. Or you do a few of them, right? We have the greatest intentions some days, don't we? I'm going to serve the Lord and honor Him all day today, all week, all month, all year. And it's not very far until we've already messed up. Until we've either sinned or forgotten or grown weak or tired. We just fall in bed, worn out at the end of the day. Sad that we didn't get to do for God what we wanted to. Then we'll get to. I think there will still be sleep. We kind of argued about that, didn't we, with the guys a few weeks ago in our institute class. We were covering this and we were just discussing, will there be sleep? But it won't be because we're so worn out, we can't do what God has called us to do. We'll have real glorified bodies. So that is glorification. Now, thirdly, let's look now at the promise of glorification. The third major point here is the promise of glorification. Why has he put it here? What's the point Paul's trying to make with it? So we've looked at the path to get there. We've looked at what it is, right, and in the, in the purpose there. But what's the promise? What's the promise? Well, it's that God has promised to accomplish this. He's promised to accomplish it. Therefore, Paul's point is, out of the ones that God has elected and called and justified, not even one of them can be lost. I think I've tried to say that every week in this series. That's the point. No one can be lost. None of God's elect can be lost. None of God's Justified can be lost. Those whom he justified, and now look at that back in Romans 8.30 there. Those whom he justified, past tense, you're a believer, you're looking at this passage, you've already been justified. He also glorified. You notice what's happening there? What tense is the word glorified in? This is the past tense, the Greek aorist tense. And in English, it's translated properly in the past tense. He's already glorified all those whom he's justified? Well, this is Paul's way of saying it's a settled fact. That's what the writers of Scripture do. When they when we want to act like it's already a done deal, they just put it in the past tense. It's as if it already happened. God said he's going to do it. God will do it. He's also glorified them. He's so certain, Paul is. He's so certain that those foreknown by God will eventually be glorified that he writes here as if it's already taken place. That's what he's doing in Romans 8. He's trying to show them that no one drops out along the way. And no one's going to mess this up. God is the most powerful being. If God has said it will happen, it will happen. No one's lost along the way. John MacArthur always says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. See, there's this idea in our society that you can choose and by your own free will come to Christ. And then when you decide to, you can leave as well. And then you can come back and you can leave. And it's just kind of back and forth your whole life. And certain systems have been designed to enslave you. And you're trying to earn it. And you don't know if you're going to get it. And you might end up in purgatory. And you spend your whole life just worried and wondering. The Bible says, no, if you're truly justified, you're not going to lose it. Don't worry. The question isn't, will I lose it or not? The question is, do I actually have it to begin with? That's what we should always ask ourselves. Am I in Christ? Am I walking in Christ? Not to beat yourself up, but to know if you need to be saved or just live out a more holy life. 
The question should never be, okay, I'm saved. Will I last and be glorified? No, no. Paul says that's, that's out of the question. That's out of the question. Later, in other books, he'll say, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's the question. Are you in the faith or not? But here he's saying, if you are in the faith, rest assured you will be glorified. There's no dropouts. There's no additions along the way. God has designed the same group that he has foreknown will be glorified. We're looking at this doctrine called eternal security. Eternal security. It's, a, it's called that in theology or sometimes the reformers and, and the reform will call it perseverance of the saints. The teaching that salvation of every believer is secure for all eternity from the moment a person is born. And really we could go back and say, in the mind of God, long before that. He who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's not going to start something in a believer and then decide later not to perfect it. It's a promise in scripture. He will perfect it. Now, Sometimes this is called once saved, always saved. You have to be careful with that because it's misused. Often in Baptist circles, once saved, always saved means well, you were baptized and once saved, always saved. So don't worry about the way you're living, or you're, you know, that you're worried about your child who's gone off into drunkenness or immorality. Once saved, always saved. They profess faith when they were six. They could be a mass murderer at 25. Once saved, always saved. No, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture saying, if you are in Christ, if you are truly justified, if you're having faith in Him right now and you're seeking to live that out, then you can't lose it. So in that case, if you have truly been saved, then you'll always be saved. Don't put it on a person who's living against God and say they professed faith. That's not what the doctrine is teaching. It's not teaching that. It's saying that if you truly are in Christ, you will always be saved. Eternal security, perseverance of the saints. All the redeemed, once God has redeemed them, are kept by his power and are thus secure in Christ forever. That's what we were singing about. I am his forever. He will hold me fast. We didn't sing, we will hold us fast. But it's him who will hold us fast. It's God. It's, it's Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. Jude 24. Now to him who is able. This is how Jude closes his letter. Brother Jesus says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God keeps you from stumbling. Because if we could, we would lose it, in other words. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Who's going to bring us to glorification? God. Because he promised it. He keeps those whom are his until that day, Jude says. Those who are genuine believers will endure in the faith because they're kept secure by God. Because of God's election. Because of God's purposes. That old Puritan doctrine, the the doctrinal statement, the confession of faith, the, the Westminster Confession. There's a lot of good in that. I like how they put this. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon the saints' own free will. It's not your free will that you are saved to begin with. And it's not based upon your free will that you stay saved. But upon the immutability, unchangeableness, in other words, of the decree of election. God's election is what it stands on. And that flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. That's high theology there. It's not your free will that keeps you in the faith, but it's God's free will. It's God's free, unchangeable love. And then they go on in that confession to talk about the work that Christ is doing and the work the Holy Spirit is doing. You see, it's not anything we do. This this whole chain has nothing to do with us in the sense of us working or keeping or doing. Of course, it has to do with us because we're the recipients of it if you're in Christ. But God is the one doing it. And that's Paul's point. You're, you're, You're promised to be glorified. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me that All he has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. You know what nothing means? Nothing. He loses none of them. With a verse like that, it's hard to see how people can deny this doctrine. And this is a very commonly denied doctrine in our culture. It is commonly denied. Armenians, Charismatics, Roman Catholics. They deny that there is eternal security. In fact, did you know that the Reformation, of all the doctrines during the Reformation, there was one that was most hated by the Roman Catholic theologians. You think it was justification by faith? No, that was hated bad enough, but eternal security was the most hated. 
It was the most. Because to think that you could know that you would be saved was very prideful. The ultimate sin of pride to say that I know. Because in their mind, you're earning it. And who would know whether they've ever earned it? You can look at some of the writings of those in the Council of Trent. Eternal security made them very angry. That's what scripture teaches, that we are eternally secure. Go go to John chapter 10. Let's see the words of Jesus here in John chapter 10, verse 26. John 10, 26. Paul's just continuing with the revelation that he's been given by Jesus when he writes Romans and 1 Corinthians. Same thing that Jesus taught here in John. John uh, records here for us, John 10, 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So he's talking to the Pharisees and unbelievers who won't accept him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Here he's talking about divine calling, effectual calling. They hear his voice and then they come. And I give eternal life to them. There's glorification. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just in case it wasn't clear earlier when he said that that nothing will be lost. Now he says no one will snatch them. Not only can they not lose their way, but someone else can't come in and take them away from me. Why? Because verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. It's the same thing Paul's talking about with with foreknowing and, and electing and calling. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And I and the father are one. Can't, can't be snatched away from Jesus. Can't be snatched away from the father. It's not possible. It can't happen. It cannot happen. Go back to Romans 8. Paul's going to finish out chapter 8 with this teaching. He's going to expand it because they're so concerned about all the tribulations they're going through and how they might lose their salvation in it. Let's skip down to 8.39. Last verse. Well, let's just start in 38 to get the whole idea. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. I mean, he's just saying anything out there in, in, in the universe, whatever you can imagine, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise of glorification. And no one's going to drop out. No one's going to work their way out. You, who would want to if you're truly saved anyway? But no one's going to come in and snatch you. The American government's not going to, no matter what happens. Those, the Muslims aren't going to, to keep somebody out of the kingdom of God if, if they're saved. They can kill us in this life, Paul says, but they cannot take away glorification. Nero couldn't do it. The Romans, no one will be able. It's not even possible to take someone out of God's plan. He will accomplish it. He will bring it about. Salvation can't be lost. And just in case that wasn't enough, Scripture teaches elsewhere that, that Christ also won't allow it. Hebrews 7.25, there, therefore he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through the Holy Spirit. The Son of God cannot lose those who are drawing near to God. Why? Because Christ is interceding for them. That's the whole point of Ephesians 7, Ephesians 8, Ephesians 9. He's their high priest. He's interceding for them. And he's able to save forever those who draw near to God. Now, he's not saying because they draw near to God, he'll save them forever. He's saying those who have drawn near to God, in other words, he will save them forever. Forever. I am his forever. Also, the Holy Spirit's involved as well. So it's not just the Father, it's not just the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. He puts a seal, he puts a pledge upon the believer, preventing them from losing their salvation. You, you understand that this is a real concern to believers throughout church history? That they might lose it? You, you would think, okay, Ephesians 8, 30 is enough, right? I mean, God's planned it. He's elected. We're not going to lose it. No, it comes up over and over in many places. It comes up in Hebrews. With, and there the writer says the Son, as I just mentioned. And now it comes up in Ephesians 1, 14. If you're a person who's also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. You were sealed in Him, in Christ. The Holy Spirit of promise. See, He's the Holy Spirit of promise. He's, he's given as a pledge, Paul says, of our inheritance, of the things that are to come. He's just a down payment, a pledge. An awesome pledge, by the way. 
really, really the word there is not just pledge, but it's like a ring that a, a suitor would give as he asked a woman to marry him. An engagement ring, we would call it. A gift. We say down payment and pledge, but that's really more the idea that the man was going to marry that woman, and so he gave her a token to show her that. And God has given us the Holy Spirit to show that it, he will seal us. We, we are in him. We're sealed up like the seal that goes around the rock that, that encloses a tomb, like the seal that seals a letter. And that's, that's our pledge of inheritance with a review to the redemption of God's own possession. God's going to redeem his possession. Not talking about salvation initially here, but in the glorification state, the redeemed body that Paul discusses here in Romans. Father plans it. It's not going to come undone. The son is still there making intercession right now. He's a high priest forever and ever for those who love God and draw near to him. And the Holy Spirit seals us. Who can undo that? Who can undo that? I mean, anything can come at us and it's not going to take us out of God's love. It's not possible. That's Paul's point. That's the point of the golden chain. People who teach that you can lose your salvation, they, they teach a born-again Christian can lose their salvation. That's a false teaching. That's a false teaching. And it undoes all of this golden chain that we just discussed. It's often the same people who deny God predestines and deny that he foreknows and is electing love. It's there for our comfort. Now you might be saying, what about people who lose faith, who claim to be a believer and later they turn away? They profess faith, but later they run from God and live their own sinful life. Isn't that an example of people losing their salvation? Well, first, we've got to be careful not to come up with things we experience and try to overwrite Scripture. If Scripture says we can't lose it, then we can't lose it. We've got to check our own interpretation and see if it's accurate. It's got to match with Scripture. John answers this in 1 John. He says, they went out from us because they were not really of us. They left because they weren't actually of us to begin with. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Some people left. They left the church. They abandoned the true church, and they started their own little cult. And their cult in John's day was teaching that, that Jesus wasn't truly God. And so they, they left, and the church, the true church is worried. What's happening? And John writes to them and says they, they left because they weren't actually of us to begin with. If they had been of us to begin with, if they had been saved like us, in Christ like us, they would have stayed with us because we're teaching the truth here, John says. But they left so that it could be shown by God that they are not of us, that that is wrong. So when a person professes faith and then leaves the faith that they once professed, they're only showing that they never came to Christ in the first place. They never came to Christ in the first place. Jesus says, there will be those that will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things for you? And he says, away from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they profess faith. They seem to work for Christ. They seem to love him. But it turns out Jesus saw right through that and they didn't love him and they didn't obey him and they didn't do what he said. So a person who says they've lost faith doesn't undo what scripture teaches. It's simply a matter of they never believed in the first place. Paul believed till his last day. He believed till the very last day when he was about to be beheaded for the faith. And he showed this perseverance of the saying. He said, I, I, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And he talks about glorification. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's glorification. That That... We cannot lose it. That God has promised to bring it to pass. He, he's shown us the path of it. He's shown us the purpose of it. He's shown us the promise of it. Now, knowing all of this, knowing that God's foreknown and elected and will bring us through to glorification, how, how should we respond? How should we live? We should put off sin in this life. Now, we, we, again, we cannot sit back and wait. We cannot say, I'm going to wait until I'm glorified someday. No, we put off sin now. We should be compelled to live holy lives now. That's what Paul gets at in Romans and 1 Corinthians. 
We should so long for glorification that we're trying as best we can to please the Lord now and live holy lives now. I'll close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He preached on this doctrine of glorification. And he said, let us stand fast. Let us not willfully throw away our prospects of glory and immortality. What? Relinquish resurrection? Now he knows you can't lose it, but he's hypothetically saying this like the apostles did to challenge people to press on. What? Relinquish resurrection? Relinquish heaven? Relinquish likeness to the risen Lord? Oh God, save us from such a terrible piece of apostasy. Save us from such immeasurable folly. Suffer us not to turn our backs in the day of battle, since that would be to turn our backs from the crown of life that fades not away. God has given us these five links in Scripture here. He's taught us of them. There are things that He does, but He wants us to know. He wants us to know so that we might press on and not lose hope. So let's ask His help to do that now. Lord, I do pray that you would help us and strengthen us. We go through trials every day. We go through tribulations. People mock us. People laugh at us because we're in Christ, because we believe in Jesus as a Savior. We follow him as Lord. Governments of the world come against us. People lose their jobs because they're Christian. People lose their spouse sometimes. Because they're believers. Their children turn away. Satan comes at us because we're Christians. He throws every temptation at our feet. Sometimes we bite and we're, we're dragged away for a time. But remind us, remind us of this truth. That we're secure in you. That you have put this link, this chain together. And you will accomplish it. It's based upon your holiness and your sovereignty. That's what we need to be reminded of, God. Please remind us of that daily, regularly. It's about who you are. It's not based on our character, but it's based on yours. Your promises, your love. We thank you for that. We thank you that you've done it and that you've told us how you've done it. Let us be comforted. Let us be assured. In Jesus' name, amen.